Welcome to Rulebenders, brought to you by Samsung Galaxy. I'm Alexis Fernandez, and in this podcast, I meet the mavericks, the innovators, the rulebenders who are defying conventions, shaking up the status quo, and redefining what's possible. In this episode, we're going to explore the rule men can't talk about mental health. If you've never been exposed to help-seeking behaviour, you may not realise that it's a good idea. And a, a big part of me opening up and my mouth and talking about this stuff, I just wanted to have the kind of conversations out in public that I never really heard when I was young because I would just want people to understand that I, I wasted years of my life. We've all probably had men in our lives who are the embodiment of the stoic Australian male archetype. They refuse to visit the doctor when they're sick, they're averse to acknowledging their emotions, and there's nothing in the world that can't be fixed with a few schooners with mates down at the pub. For years, it seemed this was the only way men in this country could be. I've noticed with some of the men in my life that when they're just around women, they feel more comfortable talking honestly about how they're feeling. But if there's other guys around, that conversation shifts. But as Bob Dylan once sung, the times, they are a-changing. And today's guest proves this rule is an outdated one. All right, so joining me on today's episode is TV presenter, chaperone to reality TV's most eligible singles and mental health advocate, Osha Ginsberg. Hi, Osha. How's it going? Hi. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Cool, man. Yeah, good to have you on the show. I'm really excited about this chat, actually. What I wanted to do was kind of bring it back and we start with like a bit of a story through your life and bring it back to your childhood because I understand that you're one of four boys, so I'd love to know what that was mm. like growing up. Smelly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm two of four. Yeah, I think at one point there were three of us going through various stages of puberty in the house at the same time. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, there were lots of holes in the walls and stuff like that, not through, through anything, you know, particularly violent. It's just like you suddenly go through this growth spurt and you, you're now two kilos heavier than you were two weeks ago and you go to, you know, push your brother out of the way just for fun yeah. or whatever and you accidentally shove him and it breaks the wall. And that's hap- that happened, you know, when we were, when we were kids just because, you know, blokes are – we're, we're just, you know, chock full of energy and stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah was, that's right. I mean, but I, I guess, you know, for me it was it was a bit odd in that I'm two of four boys. I went to an all-boys school. The only kind of real woman in my life that wasn't my mum was my accounting teacher. All my right. other teachers were, were men. So I did kind of get spat out of high school in my late teens, kind of not really understanding or have a very – very good understanding of how the world actually worked as far as um, women go. And that's only because of how I grew up and what I was surrounded with and the culture of what I grew up with. And it was a very steep learning curve. Yeah. You know, I know better now, so I do better now. But, yeah, there was I just didn't really understand. Yeah. I mean, you're a young man as well. You know, I don't know. I had girl. I had girl. I remember my first, my first girlfriend when I was 21. She really took me by the hand and went, you, this, no, you know, this is what, <laughs> And she she took the time to really kind of explain to me how the world worked. Yeah, and I was very very fortunate for that. But look, there's plenty of plenty of guys my age who never got that, you know, and plenty of men a lot yeah. younger than me that still haven't got that. And 
you know, I think sometimes we can be very quick to stacks on someone who says the wrong thing, but they just really honestly may not know. You know, if you're like me, if you're one of a bunch of brothers and you go straight to a job site or a, or a workplace that's, that's yeah. all men, um, particularly something more masculine, say, for example, um, you know, like a, a work site or, or a building site or, or something like that, a very, you know, man-centric, you know, job, you may not have ever been exposed to any other way of, of thinking. And it's just, you know, you don't deliberately go, you know, you're not kicking in doors, you know, for, for men's yeah. rights rallies. You're just like, no, I just didn't know there was any other way to be. Yeah. So, and But the thing is like those kind of situations, it's certainly in those, you know, those structures, those workplaces, those friendship groups, that can be quite stifling, you know, because you are, you are trying to be accepted, you know, very quickly after the age of about 14, 15, we all start to remove ourselves from our parents and start to, you know, look for the approval of our peers. And if that, if we've chosen a peer group that has a value system that is along those lines, it can be, it can set you up for probably not, not great outcomes, you know, and that's, that's a real trick because you may not realize that you're in a, a peer group of, with a value system that doesn't serve you certainly serve your your relationships, your intimate relationships, um, your health outcomes and your mental health outcomes. And you may not realise that. Yeah, definitely. So what, okay, what I want to go into is that I know you've spoken before about your experience of like mental health issues as a child. Mm. Um, and can you tell me about that and when that begun or when you noticed that it begun? Uh, I remember you know, like full body panic attacks from the age of about five, five. Um, maybe a bit younger. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was pretty young, yeah. I remember going off to psychiatrists, uh, you know, when I was really little, about the age of five or so. Yeah. yeah and, and panic attacks were definitely a thing that happened to me and, you know, for quite quite a while. They had varying degrees of horribleness mm-hmm. and they went away for a while and then they started coming back with a vengeance as I, as I got into my 20s. So, when that, like, as in when you were a teenager, they kind of went away? Well... Yes and no. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I got, I was pretty weird, you know. I had, I had a kind of a strange view on how the world worked. And yeah. I was extraordinarily insecure. Um, I was quite overweight. And sometimes when one is um, insecure, that uh, insecurity can be masked by wanting to dominate situations. And so I was, I was a bit, you know, very, very loud very, very yeah. loud person to be around, a very intense person to be around. Do you think it's like a, like a facade or like a protective blanket in a way? Oh, like, you know, all those things are, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think for me it was just an early version of what ended up becoming the thing that made me feel so happy about being on radio or then eventually television was that if at least I'm making a lot of noise or drawing attention my way, then at least I'm in control of what it is that you're judging me about. Yes. Later, as I got into radio and television – it was, you know, the feeling of anxiety, which for me is a lack of control. When am I more in control than I'm, when I'm on the mic, on the radio, I'm the only one talking and everyone's listening, or when I'm on the television and there's hundreds and hundreds of people in the studio and I'm looking down the barrel and there's millions of people watching live at home, like yeah. absolute bliss. Like I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen next. Yep. I know what I'm going to say next. I get to say what happens next. Like it, oh, it's complete bliss, you know. Yeah. That's what it was like. And you've had like a, a really successful TV career and radio, of course, and I feel like, you know, for such a long time, I mean, so many Australians would know who you are. So, but can you tell me when you started to – you know, throughout your career, throughout being well-known in Australia, when you started to be impacted by mental health again 
as like when it circled back to being, you know, how you mentioned that it was more intense as a child and then back again oh, as Oh, right, adult. yeah. It was during my first year of television, my first year in Sydney in 1999. It started to get very, very intense. I was in a, I'm in a new job. I was very insecure. I was dealing with a, a, some tricky people at the workplace. I was under an enormous amount of stress. I was 25. I'd moved to Sydney with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and I, I went off to see a, a psychiatrist and I was explaining to him what's going on. And he said, yeah, well, you'd probably do well with, um, you know, maybe drinking less and, you know, trying these uh, antidepressants. And that might give you a little more resilience to deal with the things that you're dealing with. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to stop drinking, you idiot. And mm. drugs, I don't need drugs. Anyway, right. seven years later, I was essentially kicking in the door of my psychiatrist, begging him to give me anything. Yeah. <laughs> he was right. Yes. And I would have saved a lot of time and trouble <laughs> if I'd well, listened right. on the day. Did you find it hard or easy to reach out for help at that age? When I was 25? Um, yeah. I remember calling my dad and saying, do you know any, because both my parents were doctors and I, I knew my dad knew some guys down in Sydney. I said, oh, do you know any psychiatrists? And he asked around and they, they found someone. Amazing. Um, his, his mates up there recommended someone. That's the guy I went to go and see. But I think, you know, I've, once I've realized that there's a problem and that's, you know, the acceptance is the hard part of real understanding there's a problem. Once I've accepted that there's a problem, I have no problem in chasing down, mm. I have no issue in chasing down a solution. Um, it's just getting to the acceptance of the problem is the Totally. Is a hard part for me sometimes, totally. Yeah. Would you imagine that? I mean, obviously, there are definitely people that do have trouble with that acceptance. But do you imagine that it would be difficult for people not in your situation or not with parents, like the parents that you had or have, trying to access mental health services or support? Is it, we're very, very fortunate to live in a country with universal health care. Okay? Yeah, hundred percent. However, just the very nature of the universal health care systems and public health care systems is a thing called the inverse care law. And that is that the most amount of care and the highest quality care is concentrated in areas of the country where people need it the least. Mm. So unfortunately, it, your postcode does dictate how easy, easily you can access mental health services. We do in this country have an incredible thing in that uh, Medicare, um, our public health system's um, main kind of binding entity, Medicare, has a thing. One of the item numbers is a mental health plan which is 10 visits to a psychologist, yeah. which is amazing. You can get so much done in 10 visits to a psychologist. That's right, yeah. yeah. I guess to answer your question, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that I was in a position to ask around, but this is a time really before the internet was very, very good. Uh, now it's super easy to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist nearby. You could even, because of pandemics, you could probably find someone in another city who specialises in exactly your needs, you know? Definitely, <laughs> um, 100%. And, and that's, that's, an, that's an amazing thing. So access is always a problem, I think, no matter where you live. But if you are in more rural and regional areas of the country, it is, it is way, way, way trickier. Do you think that there are other barriers that might stop men in particular talking about their mental health, like socially with their friends, or do you think it's something that's changing? Well, I would like to think that it's changing a lot, but... It's, I guess it's, con it's kind of conditional, I think, what, what's changing. You know, what, 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 is, what is it to be a man? Is it to, I don't ask for directions, I know exactly where I'm going, and then driving your family around and wasting petrol and, and then being late to go and visit your friends? Or is it stopping and asking for directions? Yeah. You know, what is it to be a man? Is it, it's nice, do the smart thing, stop and ask for directions. That's right. There's, Come on. There's people to help you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 
Yeah. Asking for help is a is a, is a and seeking help <laughs> and help seeking behavior is a strong thing to do. It it's is. a powerful thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It gives you a sense of control seeking help. You may think that oh, if I if I put my hand up and ask for help, then I'm I'm weak. Well, actually, no. Asking for help puts you in so much more control because if you don't ask for help, then the illness or the problem is the thing that is running the show. You don't longer have agency. Yeah, that's right. And all of your decisions are influenced by that. So I'd I'd imagine in the groups of men that we were discussing earlier, there there may be a a peer uh, attitude towards help seeking yeah. behaviour. But I would say to that is that is a has nothing to do with them. Now we live in this blessed time of we're we're connecting over a, a video chat right now, but we live in this blessed time where you can book a session with a psych over a video chat, yeah. and if, as long as you're alone in a room on a phone on a laptop, whatever you can have a session, and who's gonna have to know about it except you and the psych? Nobody. You know you, you can tell people two years later if you feel like it. But it's up to you if you ever want to disclose. I mean, I talk out loud about it because I want people to understand that help-seeking behavior is a, is a health thing and it's an important yeah, thing. And if things are starting to fray at the edges, if you're finding yourself agitated at everything, if you feel starting to get thoughts like if only everyone would just do what I wanted them to do, yeah. everything would be fine. Like that's those kind of things are early signs that that's right. something might be up yeah. and that something might be – a bit odd with your perception of what is actually going on in a certain situation and you may need to have some of those filters reset. Yeah, and it's that this lack of like I don't feel like I'm in control so it's frustrating me that people aren't doing what I, you know, want them to be doing instead of acknowledging. Yeah. Yeah. But what you said before, which I find really interesting as well, is that comparison between like going to a doctor for a physical problem, you know, something with your wrist, your knee, Mm -hmm. you're sick versus – a mental health problem, I think people feel such a sense of um, their personality is so heavily linked to their mental health or their, or it's like linked, yeah. you know, so I think they find it difficult to, to say I need help in this arena more so than, you know, my leg broke. Yeah. What I would say to you there then is if you need to think about it in a physical way, say, for example, you have a problem with getting angry when you drive. Okay, it's not uncommon. I used to have it when I was a delivery driver delivering groceries to pensioners when I was playing in bands and stuff. I used to get furious when people (laughs) weren't doing exactly the speed limit. I'm a delivery driver. Get out of my way. You know, (laughs) shat, so shat when people did 57. And I'd screaming, ranting and raving behind the windshield at these people, all right? And- if that happens to you, if people cut you off or whatever, or you're driving on the freeway and people are idiots and you find yourself getting f- infuriated with every person, understand that that is a physical neural connection. There is an actual neuron in your brain that mm. is a hardwired, there are cells of your body that are connecting those two ideas together. Okay? Yeah. That is a physical thing, just like a broken bone. It is a physical thing. Now, the great thing is your brain can form new neural connections. Your brain can take that and you can deliberately rethink that moment and go, someone's cut me off. Maybe their mum's sick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole cells that fire together, wire together. It's, you know, it's what you're feeding. Exactly. You know, we can, you can rewire that. And so right. you can then create a new physical connection. So it is a physical problem. Yes. It yeah. is a biological yeah. problem. It has nothing to do with, you know, it's it's not imagined. It is an yeah. actual thing. 
Yeah. Okay. Totally. Now, sometimes you may need medication to help those things rewire, but understand it's it's just as much of a physical issue than a, than than a broken foot. Couldn't agree more. And it's the same thing with the, with with the medication. You take it for something physical in the body or physical in the brain. At the end of the day, it's chemicals and electricity, really. Yeah. Um. But what now? Do you think it's worse for men? Um. If you've never been exposed to help seeking behaviour you may not realise that it's a good idea. Yeah. If you've never seen it, like you can't be what you can't see. And a, a big part of me opening up and my mouth and talking about this stuff, you know, starting on my podcast in 2013 and, and then writing a book about it and making a show about it and such and such and such. A big part of that was like I just wanted to have the kind of conversations out in public that I never really heard when I was young because I would just want people to understand that the uh, – I, I wasted years, of, as I mentioned, I'm, I wasted years of my life yeah, not doing what I should have done as far as drink a whole lot less, if anything at all. I ended up being sober uh, and take some SSRIs and do some work. I wasted years of my life and, and you know, had relationships that with, with, with colleagues and, and intimate partners that could have been a whole lot better if I had just listened to the doctors mm. and- um, yeah, if you don't know that it's it's a good idea, you, you don't know to do it. That's and right. I'm here to yeah. tell you, it's a it's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah. really good idea because all that's going to happen is it's just going to get worse. That's the trick about these; they're like self tapping screws. Um, these negative thoughts, once they start, they kind of get reinforced with your behavior patterns and your habitual ways of doing things start to. It reinforced them in every aspect of your life. Before you know it, it's just become just so ingrained and hardwired into who you are. You're no longer just shouting at people on the freeway. You're shouting at people in the grocery line. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it starts to become a, yeah. a real problem and then security is asking you to leave. And then, <laughs> you know? And then next thing you know, you're running the border crossing in West Australia <laughs> or something. Like, it's, you've got to be careful, man. Yeah. Like, it's a slippery slope. You've got to be careful. It doesn't get better by itself, you know? No, it doesn't. And I think I think it is important that, well, even you mentioned just before that, you know, you hadn't seen what you're talking about now. So I think if, especially like the generations coming through, they're seeing more if it's spoken about, they're, they're now aware of it. It's like, if you don't know that you can get it fixed, you're not going to go get it fixed. But now there is more awareness that you know that you can do better. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, so we hear the term toxic masculinity like all the time, especially now. And do you think that plays a role in the reluctance for some men to reach out for help? Yes, absolutely. It's masculinity is a really important thing. Yeah. Uh, as is femininity. Agreed. Yeah. As far as the toxic version of masculinity, I, of course, it contributes. It contributes to how peer groups of men treat the women and children in their lives. It it, it, it contributes to you know all, all kinds of ultimately patterns of behaviour that do huge amounts of damage to the men themselves. You know. Yeah. You live a life like that, you're going to end up uh, alone, dead, or in jail. You yeah, know? that's and I just. I feel like it could be a bit it, of a catch that's twenty-two. Pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like you could like it through that behavior. You're then less likely to seek help from others because you're trying to control others as well. So it's kind of like I can't be asking for help from the people that I'm trying to control. And I and I guess that you know that all, all leads down to if you if you're finding yourself. You know, sometimes, and I've had I had to do this in sobriety. Sometimes the people you, that you, you think are your, your very best mates actually aren't the most help, healthy people for you to spend the most time around. And yeah. it can be very difficult to separate yourself um, from such people, but it actually turns out to be quite a bit better for you. And 
ultimately, I think, you know, the, I, I, I don't know. I can only speak from my own experience in that when I was in those groups of men, all they wanted to do, and boys we were, I guess, all they wanted to do was be accepted, mm. you know? And all we were trying to do, I guess, was trying to outdo each other to get the most amount of acceptance from everybody else. Yeah. And I guess when you're a teenager, when you're a, you know, a, f- a fledgling kind of young adult trying to figure things out there's a bit a bit of leeway there as you as you because we've got to, you've got to make mistakes and realize that it makes you feel icky on the insides you know you no one figures it out perfectly you've got to bump into things before you've you got figure to out do it yourself that's, properly, yeah, right? that's true but when that carries up into young adulthood and adulthood that can be an issue obviously and and like i said it's it's no way to live a life it's no way to live it's it's a life devoid of empathy it's a life devoid of you know, actual connection. It's a life devoid of, you know, emotional connection and emotional responses. You know, it's it's a life that makes, you know, rich and fulfilling um, relationships very, very difficult to attain. And it's a life of ultimately frustration because it's a life that yearns to control every situation. But you're just going to have to be in acceptance that the universe is just gajillions of atoms crashing into each other <laughs> you know, set off by the laws of physics a bajillion years ago and we're just a part of it. Yeah. And it's always going to not work out how you planned it. And life is figuring out how to deal with it as it is rather than try to make it how you want it. If you can figure out how to deal with life as it is, you're going to be okay. If you try to make it how you want it, you, you're you not as powerful as the universe. No. You don't care who you are. <laughs> it's always going to frustrate you. And that will ultimately frustrate the people around you. This is so, yeah, it's very true. And what, okay, so something that I'd like to circle back to that you've mentioned a few times is, you know, this cultural thing of, you know, one thing in particular, drinking, and how that's like quite big in in Australian culture, and yeah, I think in both in both males and females, but also quite heavily in males, and the impact that you think that that might have on mental health in general. Dealing with anxiety by using alcohol is a, a tried and true method of the Australian male and it has been used for centuries. Uh, yeah. The thing is it doesn't work out that well, all right? But I, I still think it's bananas that we have this self-administered, publicly available, socially acceptable, undosed depressant that is for sale mm. across counters on the corner of every suburb in our country and you can buy enough of it to kill, to overdose and die. Yeah, you know that that blows my mind. Yeah, that if alcohol was being questioned, if we're going to make it legal today, would we do it? Probably not. It's a for for me, from as far as I'm concerned, it's 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 quite a dangerous drug, and we don't treat it with the you know respect it deserves. But that is to say that I'm alcoholic, and I react differently to alcohol than other people. You know, I some people are fine. Some people can have a couple of beers and be sweet. No. For me, I would hear the sound of a can being opened in the next room and then that was it. Yeah. You know, I was done. It was over. I was unable to control it. But that's the thing. There's no way of monitoring who's going to deal with alcohol in what way. You know, like you said, there's some people that's great. They have one glass and they're fine. They don't need any more. Most people will sit in the middle where they will love to get, you know, take it too far Often, and then there's people that, like yourself, who you have the tiniest amount and it's, you know, game over. The thing that I, I don't know a lot of people understand is that alcoholism is quite a progressive disease and it eventually will come to get you. Mm. Uh, you, you once you pass this certain threshold, it's coming for you. Yeah. And it's it's very, very, very hard to continue to drink moderately once you've passed that certain threshold because- 
like some other drugs, the uh, in my experience, the dosage that I needed of alcohol to feel at all normal or accepted or okay, the dosage of this drug became impossible to maintain. Yeah. And yeah. uh it, you know, at first it was a half a beer, and I was like, "Oh, I'm fine." And then it, you know, became humongous amounts more than. Well, that. that's right, because your Starting, threshold gets higher and higher, and it gets to a point where that's it's right. just not, yeah, yeah, it's not viable. Yeah, it gets to a point where you're unable to, um, you're, 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 a, you're unable to control it, and b, you're unable to not do it. I, I think I don't know if people quite realise that it, it's sneaky and it will show up to you. And like the number one symptom of alcoholism is convincing you you don't have it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would even like try to convince myself like I don't know but if I buy an $80 bottle of red wine <laughs> I'm a connoisseur if I drink two of them I'm just yeah. really enjoying this fantastic drop from the McLaren Vale <laughs> no I'm a I'm a plonker and let's be it's, honest like I yeah. couldn't stop it it's, but, that's right yeah we do all sorts of things to and I think it's important to have a have a, a a real hard look at it you know are you using alcohol rather than enjoying alcohol and if you're yeah. Are like you using it, it as a drug? If you're using it as a drug, I'm here to tell you there's far, far, far better ways to shift mood states, far healthier ways to shift mood states that do not have long-term health implications, do not have uh, progressively, you know, decreasing outcomes as far as your mental health goes. Yeah. Um, and you know, you got you got to you got to understand like how how many times in your life have you had a really terrible, terrible night and alcohol wasn't involved? Mm. Mm. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's right. We've got to be honest. Be honest about it, guys. Yeah, just because they have, you know, footballers in the ads and everyone's really sexy and hot and drink responsibly. Like, come on. That's not going to cut it. And something that's really (laughs) interesting, especially with, like, males and females, is, like, I was, you know, we were learning these stats when I was doing, you know, neuroscience at uni, but it was really big that the the number of women that seek help for their mental health is a lot higher than men, but the number of men that self-medicate with alcohol is a lot higher than women. And if you put those numbers together, it's actually the same amount of people, only the men self-medicate with alcohol and the women seek help. And so- Right. Yeah. Yeah. Self, self-medicating with alcohol has been a, a, an acceptable part of our- Forever. Um, for yeah, a part, a part of our community. But I- I would like to see us have a grown-up conversation about that kind of thing. Of course. You know, yes, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. That's the kind of classic. But you also don't need alcohol to deal with tricky times. Yeah. There are plenty of other ways to deal with difficult times in your life and far healthier ways and ways that won't – like nothing ever got better by drinking at it. Never, no problem never. ever got less you shit just, by drinking at it. You suppress Problems it. Problems only get worse when you start to drink. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Couldn't agree more. And, and I, I, I would like us as you know, as a community, to have a, a grown-up conversation about it because we are using it to mask a, a vast array of of mental health issues that, if treated properly, if treated correctly, would mm. not then spiral out into far more acute yep. situations later in life. And I, I feel we're using alcohol to mask a lot of mental health issues, yes. and then they just kind of explode and rupture like a boil. Yeah. Because they, because people have been medicating to a point where suddenly the alcohol doesn't work anymore, and now they're just at this acute phase, and they just kind of blurt out, and it may end up with them, you know, losing a job or having an affair or you know being a victim of violence or, or perpetrating violence. When if you'd actually seen to the thing that made you feel funny weeks, months, or years ago, you would never end up in this situation. Yeah. 
So you're on board with Sane Australia and you're also an ambassador for Are You OK Day. So I was wondering if you could tell me about the work you do in helping break down the stigma, improve mental health outcomes for men. I'm I'm really, really grateful that I'd still get to work with Sane Australia. They do huge things to help people living with complex mental illness in our country. We need to understand that complex mental illness doesn't just affect the person who's diagnosed. Um, it affects at least five other people. Mm-hmm. And that people who have been diagnosed with complex mental illnesses can have, and often do have, really spectacular outcomes when they get the right treatment and can live life brilliantly, meaningfully, and and be wonderful parents and wonderful employees and employers and start businesses and have a great time and contribute to society and be meaningful and everything. But it does take take getting treatment and doing it. And so I think acceptance is, is the key to all of it. You know, it is. Accept that if you, if you do have a bit of a broken brain, um, accept that there's it's happening, take responsibility for it, and then get into action and start taking some control over the situation. Yeah. And pretty soon you'll feel a lot less like you're, you know, holding onto the end of a garden hose, getting fl- flailed around the garden. <laughs> yeah. Know? And a lot more like you're the one with your hand on the tap. Yeah. <laughs> that's important. I feel know? like what you're doing, honestly, Osha, like that's what's – People like who are doing what you are doing is what would be helping other people have that acceptance. I think it would be harder to come to acceptance if you've never seen anyone else do it before you. So I think it is, like you said before, not everyone has to talk about it. It can be super private. But if there's someone that is willing to talk about it, I think that's very helpful. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. And you don't have to tell everyone. Just tell someone who can help you. And it can just be between you and them. Agreed. Osha, thank you so much for coming on to the show. This, it's been awesome. I've really, I've learnt a lot from you. I think it's fantastic and I think the listeners are going to love it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Like this. Men have certainly come a long way in how they're able to deal with internal struggles and the successes of someone with Osha's experiences are a testament to that. But the man he is today is the result of a lot of hard work and acceptance acceptance that he isn't perfect and acceptance of the problems that placed obstacles in his path. We're always turning to role models for approval in what we are doing and Osha makes a fantastic role model for other men. In order for more men to speak out about their mental health, they not only need to see others like Osha do it, but also be accepted and celebrated for it. For Osha, He's a firm believer that as a society, we need to start examining the systemic and cultural precursors to mental health issues. This includes disrupting the hold alcohol holds over us. Because the rule that we need to have alcohol to have a good time or to deal with our troubles, that's another rule worth bending. If today's podcast has brought up any feelings for you that you're concerned about or you're worried about someone you know, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. on the next episode of Rule Benders. And so when you're happy with yourself, and that doesn't have to mean that you wake up in the morning and go, I embrace every stretch mark, I love my wobbly, whatever. Like, it doesn't have to be that active. It can be, I accept that. I realise that my value is not attached to that. The way that I'm moving through the world today isn't a direct result of how many donuts I ate. From Samsung Galaxy, this has been Rule Benders. My name is Alexis Fernandez, and thanks for listening.